In this episode, Tony was unable to join us as he was having to self-isolate due to COVID. Therefore, it is just myself, Dave, and our guest, Helen Fry. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. Today we are joined by Helen Fry, author of Spymaster, The Walls Have Ears, and most pertinently for this podcast, MI9. So thank you for joining us, Helen. Oh, do you know, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So, who were MI9? MI9 is a branch of military intelligence. Uh, we've heard of MI5 and MI6, so not dissimilar. Mm-hmm. And it falls within that range of military intelligence, MI1 to MI19. And MI9 was charged with the escape lines, with evasion and escape. And that was founded in December 1939 with a view to rescue our allied personnel from behind enemy lines to help them evade capture or help them escape from prisoner of war camps. And, you know, the Germans didn't have anything equivalent to this. So it was quite unique. And this whole brainchild, really, of the head of MI9, Brigadier Norman Crockett. And I think that whole psychology of rescuing our personnel to fight again, to fight another day, is a really important one, you know, about rescue, and that they're thinking about the safety and well-being of our personnel. Absolutely. So... To contextualise this, and particularly from the perspective of this podcast, which is of course about escapes, they were there to provide assistance, provide help within the camp and outside the camp as well, and help them get out and also help them get back to the United Kingdom. Tell us a bit about how they did that. So from the very earliest days, from 1940, early 1940, Norman Crockett, as I mentioned, the head of MI9, realised that our personnel would need help in evasion and escape. So it's even before they've gone into action, Mm -hmm. MI9 is thinking about personnel. And so I'm not probably no one's aware listening to this that all of our personnel airmen soldiers commandos special agents whatever rank whatever service in the royal navy air force whatever they all receive three weeks training at one of mi9's secret sites okay and they were primarily in northwest london around highgate and Hampstead. and it was there that this three-week training course was designed to enable them to be conscious of the kind of things that could give them away if they're hiding in enemy territory. And so what I was able to work on in the National Archives were the declassified training manuals. Okay. And they're just fascinating. Mm -hmm. So really, before we even get to any escapes, MI9 is preparing Mm -hmm. our personnel so that they don't have to think, you know, if they're, they're injured, they've bailed out, or they're wounded, disorientated... They aren't going to accidentally give themselves away. And I'll give you an example of that. You can, of course, blend into enemy territory, mm-hmm. become like a civilian. So if you're in France, they really did say, acquire a beret and wear a string of onions, <laughs> which is kind of bizarre. But, no stereotype there. <laughs> but 
you could give yourself away by the way you walked. So I found this, I mean, it's hilarious some of this, but with a deeply serious side. So MI9's training, be careful about the way you walk because the British have a very distinctive way of walking. So that's interesting because we have actually covered this in in an episode, yes. In an episode covering Basil Embry's escape, he actually was in a house and saw two men walking along the street and said, I instantly knew that they were British servicemen and I nearly got recaptured running after them to tell them to stop walking like they were (laughs) British army servicemen. Instantly recognisable in amongst the general population that these two were from the United Kingdom. Extraordinary. And small things like another example that's given in the manual is he's not named, but it's a real prisoner who actually quite early in the war escapes and he acquires a bicycle so standard stuff. standard yeah cycling about 400 kilometers across enemy occupied territory so he's almost out he's doing incredibly well mm-hmm. he's quite proud of himself except he gets to this tiny town and what does he do he cycles around the roundabout the wrong way <laughs> And he's picked up back in a prisoner of war camp. So what MI9 is trying to do is to give them the mindset mm-hmm. so that it comes naturally, in a way, to think about those finer details. You've got equivalent happening with the Americans. One of the American POWs who escapes, again, he's not named in the training manuals, but he's waiting in a little cafe, watching the border to go into Switzerland. He's going to sneak himself in with a group of people. He's eating in the cafe with his fork upside down. That's what gives him away. And that's what Norman Crockett, the whole philosophy behind MI9, which underpins all your escapes, is this phrase, escape-mindedness, which was Norman Crockett's own phrase. So I want to pick up on that. And this is something that I've kind of tried to challenge a little bit in my own work, because my background is nowhere near as illustrious as your own, but I do have a little bit on this. And I've always kind of felt the need to challenge this concept of duty to escape, because there's absolutely nothing in the King's regulations that states that they had a duty to escape. But they did create this perception that there was a duty to escape. And this, I think, is more akin to the escape-mindedness. This is my opinion, I grant you. The concept that they created that surrounded this that was escape-mindedness seems to have fed into this perception that there was a duty, quote-unquote, to escape. Yeah, that may even have originated from MI9. I think it did. Um, I think they purposefully blurred the lines. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, escape to return to fight another day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, not to just leave them languishing in prisoner of war camps. And if you think about it, I think you're absolutely right at the heart of it, MI9, because take the airmen, mm-hmm. just one example. This is shot through, excuse the pun, this is right through the training and the, the reports that it takes up to three months to train an airman and it's very expensive if they're shot down or they're in prisoner of war camps you very quickly are going to lose your air superiority and that was really central that we must not give the Luftwaffe air superiority because they could mount a successful or Hitler could mount a successful invasion of Britain yes absolutely so that was really at the heart of it and so not only airmen of course but your fighting personnel they are needed absolutely I think there's also also another angle to it too though because you hear so often reports and memoirs especially of pilots in particular who you know they would describe the feeling in the in the mess hut of three planes didn't come back after mm. a bombing raid what have you and they just knew what had happened mm. but if then three months down the line two or three of them suddenly reappear in the mess hut because they've survived either evaded or been in a prisoner war camp got it and got back the morale boost that must have really taken place within those squadrons and whenever a, a pilot mm. or, or 
you know, must be the same in the army and the navy for that matter. But you know, the air force really gives a good example of this. Their morale boost when they see one of their mates coming back from the dead almost must have been enormous. So to be able to provide that directly into the mess up from MI9 indirectly, but to be able to provide that morale boost must have really made a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we think about that when Airy Neve was the first British officer to escape from Coldix successfully and make it back Mm -hmm. it was so significant and that was a huge morale boost Mm -hmm. the telephone call came from london saying he's just landed on british soil and at wilton park near beaconsfield the headquarters of mi9 there were huge cheers and every (laughs) rank male and female working on site and it was tri-services army air navy so all of them celebrated at lunchtime with pink gin oh brilliant so the I love that. They love their pink gin, which they made themselves. What a fantastic detail. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I mean, it's a bizarre thing, isn't it, that bit of detail? But it was such a morale boost. And there are stories of, you know, men suddenly turning around in the mess and seeing Johnny, for example, Mm. walking in, who they thought was dead. And they realised that, yes, the risks were huge particularly for those pilots but there was a chance don't worry that kind of bravo spirit mm-hmm. you know we can make it back it is possible and of course the germans thought that there was an impossibility particularly escaping from cold so we tell you don't we never say never really absolutely and so that was part of the drive to keep those soldiers airmen all those personnel mentally sane in prisoner of war camps the belief that if they successfully escaped they could make it back and why not believe that you can be one of those that are going to make it back yes absolutely i mean we have touched upon this a little bit before particularly amongst the prisoners of war in an episode we did with midge gillies because she um, wrote the barbed wire university which is Mm. about life as a prisoner of war essentially and we discussed the fact that it wasn't every prisoner who was trying to escape it was actually quite a small percentage Eggers, for example, estimates it was somewhere around about 10 to 15% of POWs, as does the Commandant of Stalu of Three. He reckoned it was only around about 10 to 15%, but it was an incredibly focused 10 to 15% of the population who really went for it. Some kept themselves sane by studying law or agriculture or went into the theatre and did plays, and quite often a number of them became actors. Yes. Peter Butterworth, Clive Dunn are examples. But there was still this 10 15% who kept themselves active and occupied through escape and so it must have really made a difference to know that while they were pursuing this they had that support even if they didn't know what its name was they could see it filtering through to the camp yes so it's really important to say again really that mi9 was top secret absolutely very few people knew about it outside of the personnel and i think even it's true to say parliament didn't know about mi9 mm-hmm. churchill did but we have to remember that yes they didn't know they knew that there were coded letters coming in and parcels and that the so-called war office was sending this in but i think that perspective and perhaps i should challenge you on that perspective mm. that, yes they are doing activities like the plays theatre they're painting stage sets for their theatre but my reading of the camp histories for each of the camps even though some of them realised they probably weren't going to escape Mm -hmm. or they weren't going to put themselves forward Mm -hmm. they still help so you have like a forgery department they've got like a factory 
of this secret world that's operating when the guards aren't looking. Like the forgers, they're making this, they're making fake uniforms. And it goes back to MI9 again and the mm-hmm. training. They won't have realised that the training they received was MI9. But they just got this training from the war office or the army or whatever. But MI9 said, if you're ever captured, and I've seen this in the training manuals, keep mentally sane, <laughs> keep active And that was a really, really important part and keep physically active if you can. And the other mandate, of course, as part of those escapes, if this is probably one of my favourite, if it moves, nick it. (laughs) So they were nicking everything and everything will have a purpose. Mm -hmm. Of course, the other thing I like is the fact that at various points they were like needing some of the the iron stuff. They were like chopping off the legs or they were getting shorter, Mm. the legs of the bedsteads. And I think, didn't the Germans notice that the beds were getting shorter? And you've got other situations, like you'll probably remember this example in my book, of if they're digging tunnels at night and suddenly there's a spot checked, guard looks and you can't have an empty bed mm-hmm. so of course you've got a fake prisoner in the bed and yes you're going to use the pillows for the body but the head they used a pumpkin and then they painted the face with the paints that they had to do their dramatic stage sets for the theatre but I love the bit about the hair <laughs> someone would sneak <laughs> in to the barber's room oh, in the camp, <laughs> nick the hair and stick it on and in the camp history it says it actually looked like a real man in the okay. bed and it's all that kind of thing. It's a bit of schoolboy humour, mm-hmm. skullduggery. It keeps them sane. It gives them a camaraderie. And it believes that they're going to help their comrades that are going to try and escape. Yeah, I agree with everything you say. So you've mentioned Neve. You mentioned Crockett. For those familiar with the history of MI9, that's two of the major names, key players of MI9. So I think it's maybe worth us looking at who some of the key people were within MI9, what they did okay so we've talked about norman crockett who headed mi9 you have airy neve who becomes significant after his escape uh, he makes it back and he eventually is part of the top secret section <laughs> of mi9 known as room 900 and working with him who was the, actually in room 900 before him was jimmy langley okay jimmy langley had not made it out in the evacuation of Dunkirk. And that's something which I learned during my research. I I hadn't been aware. The fantastic evacuation on the beaches of Dunkirk. But 50,000 of our guys were left behind. Mm -hmm. They didn't make out. They were kind of holding back the German lines. Neve was one of them. Langley was another. Uh, He eventually escapes Langley and makes it back. And he's heading up Room 900. And then Airy Neve is also joining Room 900 when he gets back. And they, they are pivotal characters because Room 900 was sending agents behind enemy lines you think oh my gosh isn't mi9 just escape and evasion not say just i mean that's important work or evasion and escape as they would say in, in military circles the other way around but they're actually sending them on top secret missions men and women okay behind the lines we don't know what they were doing it's not so that's SOE. still classified that's still classified i could not find with one exception operation blackmail which happens over holland in march 9, um, 1944 okay with the exception of that we don't really know what these intelligence missions were and as far as we can tell the files i'm pretty sure there are files and that they just haven't been declassified and the only reason we know about it about some of the men and women is because if they've died in action with mi 9s 
Room 900, also known as Intelligence School 9, mm-hmm. IS9. So they kind of throw three sort of different names. They've died in action and there's just two or three pages in, in a slim file mm-hmm. about them, but with no idea you know, how they've died in action. Some of them were emigres who'd signed up, German, Austrian, Jewish refugees primarily, oh. who were prepared to be parachuted back into dangerous areas, Yugoslavia, with partisans, very dangerous. Some of them recruited in what was then Palestine. But that's really the only sense we've got. So Neve and Langley are at the heart of that. And then you've got the character of Christopher Clayton Hutton, who's our... Fantastic. You love I, I, him. Lo- I love Clayton Hutton. He's fantastic. You do. <laughs> He's the kind of boffin. Mm-hmm. He's the cue, isn't he? He's great. And he, with Charles Fraser Smith, Charles Fraser Smith is procuring a lot of the sort of gadgets and things that we need to send into the prisoner of war camps. It's Clayton Hutton that has to invent ingenious ways. Where how are we going to hide this? You can't have a big army compass. We're going to have miniature compasses, which are about the size of a of my fingernail, which is very tiny. Mm. And so he thinks about we're going to hide them behind buttons to access them you unscrew them the wrong way the germans will never find it all kinds of things smuggled in that will help with the escapes and he's at the heart of that christopher clayton hutton i think the the pens are my favorite you like the pens yeah because again they're reversible so if you twist them the normal way it comes out and it's like a normal fountain pen but if you twist it the other way it's got a little secret compartment that has ink dyes for changing the color of uniforms so that they can be recut into a continental design found him absolutely fascinating partly actually the tailoring aspects my mom was a dressmaker uh-huh um so i've kind of seen paper patterns my entire life i can't do anything with them but i recognize them in an instance so seeing all the sort of tail retailing angles that so it can be turned into a sort of businessman's suit and that sort of thing i just find that absolutely fascinating yeah. well and they're making the german uniforms as well mm. in which they're going to escape so airy neve makes his own german uniform and the other thing which mi9 did i think is so clever they're allowed to receive parcels of course mm-hmm. but mi9 creates these fictitious charities Yes. We don't want to compromise the Red Cross because that's that's serious. So we're not going to compromise. The Red Cross, they send in regular parcels mm-hmm. via them, and that's fine. Prisoners are allowed to receive parcels according to the Geneva Convention. So we're going to have some very generous charities. Incredibly generous. Oh, very generous. In fact, so generous. I mean, they're all fake. Mm. So we have fake letter-headed paper for, you know, the Vitulers Association. Is that the one that quotes Damon Runyon? <laughs> <laughs> got something like the ladies knitting society (laughs) and of course complete nonsense Mm -hmm. they don't exist and the germans don't realize it and those parcels have things contraband hidden Mm -hmm. in it i say contraband the tiny compasses silk maps i mean we're talking about the scale of this across the wartime I don't know if you remember this from the book. 1.4 million miniature compasses. Mm-hmm. 1.4 it's, million. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, not, not just to smuggle them in, but actually to manufacture them yeah. at a time of serious shortages. And to be able to manufacture and produce 1.4 million compasses alone, I just thought was incredible. And over a million maps as well. Oh, 1.6 million yeah. maps. Silk maps. And again, it's Clutty's kind of unorthodox. I think that's what he is. He's a bit of a boffin, yes. He likes inventing things but he's kind of unorthodox 
unorthodoxy as well because those maps you can't have thick paper maps because mm. they're quite chunky to fold up and the airmen's maps i mean they just get confiscated the minute they're taken prisoner they're you know searched everything's gone so we're gonna have these silk maps well if you just print straight on silk it does run mm-hmm. now mi9's maps are at least three different colors the contours of the maps and the writing of the places on the maps are so sharp mm-hmm. and clutty as he was known christopher clayton hutton was clutty actually experimented and eventually found that if you add pectin okay which ladies used in the 70s and 80s to add to jam that would work okay and then it's double printed on mm-hmm. each side but 1.6 million maps is it's incredible and that's everything else that's going on as well. Quite, quite extraordinary, I mm-hmm. think. Absolutely. I think my favourite story of Clutty is the fact when he, he needs some timing devices, timers. Okay. So where are you going to requisition timers from? He turns up at Hamley's <laughs> toy shop and says, excuse me, I'd like all your clockwork toys. And, and here's the kind of requisition note. And they give them to him and he's taking all these children's toys to pieces it's completely crazy Mm -hmm. isn't it it's nuts (laughs) but he has a very serious task Mm -hmm. and that is about rescuing our airmen and soldiers do we know specifically what it was to go in for at all or well they don't say in the mi9 of course they don't but he's given carte blanche to just, you know, he's sat in a shed. It's fantastic. Or well, I think a shed sort of thing at the end of the field at Wilton Park, left completely alone to just think about, however crazy, what they don't want is somebody, if he's in a regular office, and this comes out through the files, they don't really, and Crockett realise this, if you don't want him sat in a busy office where people are poking their nose and, mm. oh, what's he doing? Just leave him alone. So the fact that he ended up in a field completely on his own, inventing whatever he needed to invent yes i think crockett's management of the different aspects of mi9 was actually quite critical to its success because on the one hand you've got someone like clayton hutton who needed to be left alone and Mm. and actually protected from on high because he was a maverick there is a famous quote which this guy does not adhere to red tape tape and to regulations and and crockett effectively had to protect him from the the bean counters if you like from the treasury and the war office to to actually allow him to do his work so that they could then mm. provide this uh, assistance but on on the flip side you've then got you know room 900 that he oversaw and and various other characters and his, his style of management of mi9 seems to have been quite critical to his success there is one other name i want to kind of draw out a little bit who you discovered uh, was a member of mi9 if it fell together a little bit briefly and that's kim philby oh yeah i mean this is the point <laughs> at which it's like i keep reminding myself never be surprised by what you're going to find in your research indeed now in a million years i would never have ever dreamt that Kim Philby would cross MI9's story. And what I discovered, there is just one file, most of the M- uh, Room 900 files, whether they're dropping agents or whatever else they're doing, are not declassified. I haven't found them. They're not there. But there is just this one file. And I looked at it, and it's a report. It's, in, it's dated 1942. And it's a report, well, a series of reports, different days, about tracking, well, they're tracking German agents, spies, dead letterboxes, they're 
looking into German safe houses. This is not evasion and escape. Mm -hmm. This is not even intelligence gathering after debriefing. Because all our airmen and soldiers, as you know, were debriefed when Mm. they came back from enemy-occupied countries. And it's those debriefs that we use for our our usual episodes. It's the reports that have been generated by those debriefings that that's what we cover in our episodes. Yeah, and and that provides actually really useful intelligence on, on many levels. But now we've got this, these series of reports that are tracking German spies and you think, this is counter-espionage. Mm. So I was actually quite proud of discovering <laughs> that in fact MI9's legacy is much, much broader than what we'd previously understood and that they were involved in counter-espionage and the branch that was involved in counter-espionage of course was its top, top, top secret section, Room 900 Mm -hmm. and who is signing the reports? Kim Philby. Wow. So he's working for Room 900. Fantastic. And what I noticed was that anybody connected, there were just a few characters, Airy Neve, Jimmy Langley, of course, Donald Darling later, they mm-hmm. end up working or known to have worked for MI6. So one of the challenges I had to work through, because the publisher sort of asked me, well, what is the relationship between MI9 and MI6? The lines are quite blurred. Mm. And it looks like Room 900 is MI6 embedded in MI9. Okay. But it might not be, but that's what it looks yeah. like. It, that's probably what it is. Hopefully the files get declassified one day and we can work it all out. Well, I suppose <laughs> if it is part of MI6, it will not be declassified. Mm, quite. And maybe the stuff that still has to be protected, and, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And we've got enough material to be getting on with for the time being, haven't we? <laughs> I, I think so, absolutely. <laughs> so we've, we've got this organisation which is focused primarily on escape and evasion. As you say, they've got espionage and counter-espionage, but a lot of that is still classified so we don't know too much about that but it's fascinating to learn that mi9 was even involved in that at all because that's that's much more sort of certainly mi6 and to a lesser extent mi5's kind of realm mi9 wasn't known for that until your book and so as i say we've got this organization that are focused on continental europe primarily although it is a global organization oh it is yes but it is primarily continental europe if we're honest they have a very important wing out in the far east is that the BAAG? Uh, yes, yeah. that's the British Army A Group. And primarily, that whole area of the Far East came under the American equivalent of MI9. MISX. Yes, so they did most of this work out there, but we did have a branch of MI9 out there. So that was covered. And in those famous training manuals that I keep talking about, mm-hmm. there was, for those personnel known to be going to the Far East, they would have jungle training, you know, how to survive in the jungle. It's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating. So completely different from from Western Europe training. And of course, you can't blend in no. in the Far East because you very obviously cannot blend in. You do yes. not look uh, Oriental or of, of any of those countries around there. But again, there's training on how to resist interrogation, a very different kind of interrogation, how to understand, in that case, Japanese potentially, if you become a prisoner of war with the Japanese. And in, in part of the training, it's interesting, it does say, and it was found to be true, the Japanese believe that, well, you know, if we lose a couple in escapes they're not going to worry look out you know look out for them they won't survive the jungle so that's an interesting thing actually 
I think the the other challenge over in the Pacific Theatre was a combination of, as you say, as a Caucasian, you weren't going to assimilate mm. particularly well, but also the distance to cover was so significantly bigger. You might cover a couple of hundred miles in Europe, but in the Pacific Theatre, you're talking about thousands of miles. It was just enormous and jungle as well, as opposed to occupied France, for example, which at least yes. still had roads and paving and you could nick a bike if you needed to and all this sort of stuff i'm not going to say it was a hospitable atmosphere in occupied europe but it was certainly a better chances of survival were probably better significantly yes. better yeah. but you couldn't really make it back to britain from there or to united no. kingdom from there no so it's a very kind of different theater and i do have a chapter on that in the book which is interesting mm-hmm. uh, but it, of course it does cover the middle east mi9 right up through to scandinavia all of occupied europe western europe so mm-hmm. all of that is covered so focusing back into if you like continental europe a bit we'll come back to escape but let's look at evasions first because we we reference it in our episodes but we don't look at it so much because we are looking at escapes and so escapers could filter into the evasion line but we we don't really touch evasion so much so i'm trying to get my head around that because escapers needed those evasion lines Absolutely. Well, they're called escape lines, so they do need them. There are those who get out with no help from MI9, mm-hmm. but they're in a minority, interestingly, in the files, from what I can see, that the vast majority, although they may not realise there's an official escape line, would actually be passed down, the three main lines being the Pact line, which ran from Marseille, on the near side, over the Pyrenees into Spain. They would be picked up by one of MI9's people, codenamed Monday. He was Creswell. Creswell would take them down eventually to Gibraltar, which British owned and still is, and they would be repatriated. They would be flown back to Britain. So there was that line. There was a Shelburne line from about 1942 which carried on till just after D-Day. I mean, it finished just before D-Day and then took up again just after D-Day for a short time. And that was a sea route from Pluha in Brittany across to just near Falmouth, the Helford River. Okay. So we've got secret line from... Brittany into Cornwall, yes, uh, smuggling them in. I was going to say, it's like the old smuggling routes into Cornwall, isn't it? (laughs) And into those little coves. Mm. But they were incredibly dangerous. And those sea routes were always done in pitch darkness, never by moonlight. You think, incredibly challenging. They are dropping secret agents in from Cornwall into France and then picking up evaders and escapers to go back. And if you think about, not only is it heavily defended, that coastline, but the Germans have imposed a 20 kilometre exclusion zone and they are getting under the radar, so to speak, of that and sneaking in. I, you know, think they were so brave incredible yeah. I mean how they managed to survive and they did they saved lives that way and then of course the famous comet line which ran from Brussels right through Paris you know <laughs> under the noses of the Nazis down great the, isn't it <laughs> it is the far side of the Pyrenees the other side into Bilboa in Spain and again Creswell will be picking up these and all along the Pyrenees you have these helpers these families these safe houses some of them were betrayed I mean all over France occupied Europe some were denounced to the mm-hmm. Germans with horrifying consequences, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. 
not only them but their whole families rounded up sometimes their friends and shot or sent to concentration camps Dede de Jong who founded the Comet Line she ends up in 43 in Ravensbrück she does survive Mm -hmm. but her successor Nemo who's Jean Grindel he doesn't survive he's actually shot so I think to understand and I'm not sure if that's come out in what you've done previously around the escapes but dangerous for the thousands of helpers that escorted airmen and soldiers out incredibly dangerous a lot of them very young women i interviewed one that was just 16 years old when she started to work for the escape line you know she's still at school doing her exams but of course she and her friend her friend had pigtails they just looked too young to be involved too innocent too innocent (laughs) but my goodness but but the courage Mm -hmm. and in this case elsie Martin. Marshall, she and her whole family were rounded up November 42. Only she and her mother survived. They survived terrible, terrible treatment and torture in the prisons and survived, like Dede de Jong, survived in Ravensbrück to be liberated by the Allies at the end of the war. Honestly, horrifying. And they were just days from death, really. Even to last three years in a concentration camp is an incredible achievement. And you said she was rounded up in 42, so... Yes, November 42. Well, she had some time in the horrifying Gilles prison in Belgium terrible terrible circumstances and torture they were tortured Mm -hmm. how you can imagine what that's like but Elsie for me and I do tell this story regularly because her her testimony and very few of them have survived I mean she was the only one I was able to interview and it was just before the pandemic kicked in at the end of 2019 in her late 90s I wanted to understand why did they do it because they've risked their lives mm-hmm. for these airmen and soldiers who they didn't know they didn't know and they did believe that ultimately the Allies would liberate Europe. Mm-hmm. They had that belief. Well, why not wait? They were not prepared to do that. And that's when her face just became stonily defiant. And she just looked at me and she said, every day they took our food, our fuel. We were, we were starving, she mm-hmm. said, and we were freezing. They filled the trains with everything. They plundered our country, she said, but most of all, they took my Jewish friends. Mm-hmm. And we said, out with the Nazis and I'm like oh my gosh and you know her face mm-hmm. and the anger in her face 80 years later or so and she said to me the fight for freedom transcends everything and she doesn't see herself as a heroine or brave I'd, I'd politely disagree with her on that one <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> Good luck with that because she's absolutely (laughs) humble. Don't question. It's what we had to do. Why wouldn't we? And you think, my gosh. And in her case, yeah, her father was shot. She witnessed friends being shot in the streets. They knew the risks Mm. and still they were prepared to do it. But linking with MI9, which I found interesting, she said to me, I only knew about MI9. This is Elsie Marshall. She said, I only knew about MI9 after the war when we had the reunions. She said, no, we just work for the line. She said all we knew was that somebody in London was sending us money, you know, agents, whatever it was, it was coming through from London. At, well, as we know, it's just outside London at Wilton mm-hmm. Park. No concept of MI9. It was so top secret. Even those that so she's inadvertently working for MI9 doesn't know its existence. Mm. But the level of trust that they put in that... It's incredible, yeah. And they were prepared to do that, and and especially, you know, these young women were completely fearless. 
Absolutely. And they saved lives. Maybe they just didn't think about their own safety. They just did what they had to do. And you don't so much when you're younger. No. I think that's probably fair. But I, I know what you mean. They did know the risks. Undoubtedly knew the risks. It was in yes. front of them on the street. People have just been lined up against walls for not much at all, really. So the risks weren't lost on them. People have been rounded up and put onto trains to who knows where. Well, sadly, we now know where. They knew. They saw colleagues being, being shot, being taken away, being beaten up. So they knew that that could be their and the awful thing I think the the most harrowing part really are those dreadful men primarily men and and some women who betrayed the escape Mm. lines and one in particular Harold Cole in France he originally worked for MI9 but the Abwehr the German Secret Service sort of turned him to work for them and he would take fake airmen into the homes of I mean there's no protection against that no fake airmen into the homes of these helpers and they were rounded up hundreds possibly thousands actually we don't know because the helpers files are still classified to protect their names forever we don't know how many but it would almost certainly mi9 hints the files hint it's into the thousands have lost their lives to rescue our airmen and soldiers Mm -hmm. cole was a a known con man a fraudster back in london he was wanted by scotland yard i believe Mm. and there are accounts of him performing exceedingly brave acts in order to help airmen early on in his career on the line yes but you're right you know he was turned relatively easily for money for money exactly to fund a lifestyle that he enjoyed and comparison that i always find really interesting with him is actually eddie chapman who was another con man and a fraudster (laughs) and a a bank robber if i remember correctly and yet he let's call it chose the path of righteousness and the the contrast between the two who started from relatively similar backgrounds but actually chose completely different paths it is i just find it absolutely fascinating that there is that similar but also the contrast between the two. Yeah, Harold Cole is a bit of a mystery because there are suggestions and hints that he was actually a triple agent and he was turned yes. again to work for us. And the man behind that was Claude Dancy. Claude Dancy, by this point, he was MI6, a secret intelligence service, MI6. He had made it to the rank of being deputy head of MI6. I think he expected to be head of MI6 at some point, but never was. Now, Dancy was running the MI9 and the MI6 escape lines and making sure if he had control over because they had to be kept separate you don't want one to be compromised and they all go down so Claude Dancy was in charge of both the MI9 and the MI6 escape lines and it has been suggested that he had this sort of it's a dirty game in the shadows where Mm. to save maybe potentially I don't know for sure potentially to save an MI6 operation in a particular area Cole betrayed part of the mi9 escape lines that's what's emerging what some scholars believe if you look at the mi9 files claude dancy is not mentioned in a single file and yet he is pivotally go back to the characters we talked about Mm. neve and langley and but claude dancy was pivotal to part of the mi9 operation and yet his name is completely missing Mm -hmm. i suddenly realized that at one point He's actually not mentioned. Never mentioned, yeah. Never mentioned and probably busy work for MI6. So we've got these lines running through Europe and we've covered three so far, but they they were by no means the only ones. Yeah. 
If you're an evader or an escaper for that matter, you've had the training back in the UK, but how do you know to contact them? You don't just suddenly stumble across a secret escape line that you just happen to need. Possibly slightly easier if you're an evader who's just been shot down and you've landed in a farmer's field and the farmer just kind of hides you in the barn until he makes contact with someone. But how do you go from someone on the run, whether yes. an escape or an evader, to finding yourself on one of these lines? Ah, well, you don't make yourself known. That's the interesting point. It's about layers of security. Mm-hmm. So, and that again comes out in the training the security consciousness. Because MI9 was saying to these guys, you know, basically, look, if you are captured again, if you're recaptured, the worst thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to end up in a prisoner of war camp again. Mm -hmm. For these helpers, these men and women, they will be shot, their lives are at risk. You are not, to keep details of if you're ever told of where you stayed, you are not to write it down. And so if they found themselves behind enemy lines in evading capture and it's still true if they're on the run okay so let's separate them an evader so let's think you're Elsie Marshall you've been told by a member of your network might even be your own father there's a plane that's come down one and a half kilometers away he's probably hiding in the woods go and look for him and it's like that so the airmen soldiers have to hide and they have to rely on somebody coming to find them okay but true i suppose for some evaders and then for those who are escaping they might observe from a distance farmhouse for a while and think okay so the mother's come out all oh, right there's a grandmother and hopefully all the men under 60 are away fighting from their perspective and mm-hmm. they're sitting in the young children so you kind of suss them out you think okay they're probably going to be okay it was risky but you might if you're absolutely desperate go into the farmhouse and say you know you're happy to give me bread and, and water or whatever or feed me and quite often they did mm-hmm. so you you're not putting contact you have no idea where the escape lines run that is run by the escape lines themselves and even within that the helpers couriers they don't know everybody in the network and the chain is to protect them so you just have to hope that if you've bailed out in a field you're going to find some shelter somebody at some point will find you so that that's fine if you have just been shot down if we look at say an escaper in the camp because we know that there were escapers who ended up on these escape lines many hundreds of escapers who ended up on these escape Mm. lines so there must have been some way for them to, to contact. To co- to, yeah, there must no. be. Some, so no, they just locked out. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you take Stalag Luf three, that mm. great escape of March forty four, with with horrifying consequences mm. for fifty airmen, they're really scattering, and they're getting on trains, and, and goodness knows what they're doing, and trying to get as far away as possible. So they, there is an element, as in with Neve's case, of sort of trying to to make it out on their own. In fact, Neve didn't come out with the help of an escape line. No. So it was a mix, really. But if they're struggling, they might approach, as I've said earlier, like a farmhouse for help. And if they're getting tired and hungry, that farmhouse might actually be part of the escape line. Those that can be trusted within a village would know each other, mm-hmm. hopefully. So all they know is one person in the chain. And that person yeah, will come and get them. And then that farmhouse, the people living in that farmhouse, usually women and children will not know what happens to that airman. Yeah. So they were passed along the chain like a parcel. They were referred to as parcels, weren't they? Yes. And the safe houses. And so there's that whole work that has to be protected. But that's... I don't know, that sounds quite simple. No, but But I mean... that's the way it was. It's extraordinary when you think about it that the Comet Line, for example, ran from Brussels all the way down to Gibraltar. 
Oh, it was a heck Effectively. of a... Yeah, yeah, it's a heck of a line. Mm. And over the Pyrenees, you mustn't forget mm-hmm. what a mean task that was. I Absolutely. Mean, you can't use the regular path because, of course, the Germans are aware of that. Even the Spanish, who are allegedly neutral, supposedly, some made it over but were to be arrested and put banged in, banged in prison and Creswell had to sort of go and get them out. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't assume that they're safe even in Spain. And they have to use donkey trails. And if there's... Smugglers tracks. Yes. Yep. We're back to the smugglers again. Yep. And if there's any chance that even those kind of areas could be compromised, they had to you know, make their own track go higher, more difficult terrain. And extraordinarily, too, I think if we think about this, they're operating throughout the year, even yes. in heavy snow. So moving into the camps themselves, mm. we've kind of covered on the ground in occupied Europe. You said earlier that MI9 were instrumental in smuggling and escape contraband. And it wasn't just compasses and maps. It was far, far greater than that. But yes. I think it's worth us looking at on the ground in the camps and how MI9 filtered into that and through the escape committees and the role of the escape committees and how that then fed into the individual escape efforts. Yes, yeah, so each camp had an escape officer who was usually the senior ranking prisoner of war and there would be an escape committee and everyone had their roles within that. So the no, no escape could take place without the final agreement of the escape officer. So you can see through the camp histories and they are different in the different camps. Uh, some are far more productive mm-hmm. than others, although they're all involved in various ingenious ways of escape. Oh, yes. <laughs> so so really, it's that the men are coming to the escape officer and saying, oh, I've had an idea, sir, you know. Well, and of course, if he thinks it's worth going with, they would start making what was necessary mm-hmm. to aid in escape. Or if it's digging tunnels, they have to coordinate where they're going to hide the soil. You've probably covered this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Where that you know making sure that everything looks normal above board. So we've got things being smuggled in. Give you another example of the blankets, and then of course tipping a particular chemical in the water of a bucket, and then the blankets out shape the pattern, mm-hmm. and they start to make that. So it's everything's coordinated, and it's the escape officer's job to approve when that escape can happen. And so MI9 were feeding in information and escape contraband to this escape officer, in effect. Well, any of them were looking out for it. So, for example, you would have some prisoners who would work in the post office room because they like to be kind and help the guards out. Well, of course, what they're really looking for are those parcels that are coming in with contraband. Mm -hmm. So kind of intercept them if they can. So I think, yeah, the... the, uh, Escape officer is really the sort of brains behind and the authority behind what happens and just making sure all the security is there. But really, MI9 is also relying on the ingenuity of the men. Yeah. So they can only do so much. They facilitated the ingenuity rather than uh, created it. But also, equally, there were coded letters going in Mm -hmm. and out, so Mm -hmm. both ways. And not every prisoner knew the code that was for security reasons so you'd have one maybe two officers that could do the code writing the the writing of the letters and mi9 would send these in they would send back sometimes it had intelligence about what they'd seen if they'd 
had a trip to the dentist out mm. of the camp. But also in terms of escaping, the escape officer might get the coder to write to MI9 and say, well, actually, we could do with a whole load of pliers or we need wire sent in or we need some secret ink or whatever it was. Mm. And then they just had to wait for it to arrive. And so it was, too, it was like a shopping list. Yes. A coded shopping list to MI9. And MI9 wouldn't wouldn't ask what they needed it for. I mean, it was pretty obvious. They're obviously yeah. making something or doing <laughs> something. So it's two-way. Mm-hmm. There is an example of a coded letter, which I think you'll like. And it arrives at MI9 headquarters in Wilton Park. Okay. And they decode this letter. But the prisoner wrote simply, everything well here. This is home from home. MI9 knew, this is home from home, that they were bugging their conversations. I love that. That's great. So subtle, (laughs) this is home from home, in other words. (laughs) And to warn our guys even more that are going into action, if you're captured, the Germans are going to bug your conversation. They're going to plant microphones. It was all the things we were doing Mm. to German prisoners of war at the three secret sites. Trent Park, Latham House and Wilson Park, all the things that MI9 later become part of MI19 were doing German prisoners of war. But the ingenuity of that prisoner to write that coded letter, he couldn't write in his letter, well, we're being bugged in the camp here because it goes through the German censor. Mm, that's, that's brilliant. It's getting that information back and filtering that intelligence back first to MI9 and then filtering that out amongst yes. those who are currently uncaught. Yes. If you like, or serving on the front line, I should really say. On the eventuality of them actually being captured, they needed to know this information. So it was crucial that this coded information got back. As we said, they did smuggle all sorts of things and we've touched upon maps and compasses and had a number of different ways. You had these charities sending them in, but it's also how they got them in and where they were hidden. And so some of my favourites are the secret compartments on the chessboard or the Monopoly, of course, and Operation Smash Hit is always worth covering of course there was a broad range of items that they were smuggling and you know you said pliers as well and oh anything that they needed could yeah. be smuggled in and it's finding again it's clutty's job christopher clayton hutton to you know they need this how are we going to send that in so he would find ingenious ways of course hiding things in parts of a shaving kit because as long as the germans couldn't find it prisoners were allowed to keep their shaving kit the board games it's as you say it's back to those fictitious charities mm. we don't want the prisoners getting bored in the prisoner of war camps we're going to send them some games keep them occupied so they're not escaping (laughs) keep them (laughs) occupied that's the irony and you've got the mini saws being hidden in compartments there anything because saw is going to be very very helpful Mm -hmm. but anything the chess set so you've got the the knight that bottom unscrews counterintuitively and it would have a waterproof lining in it and you could put i don't know invisible ink or whatever you're going to put in Mm some kind of chemical so that's how you get that kind of thing into the camps in a chess piece and you had dominoes you had well just about everything any board game and the packs of cards the packs of cards yeah waddingtons were were on board another pun on board with (laughs) all of this they were brought in during the manufacturing so they're manufacturing some ordinary stuff for joe public but there was the special mi9 stuff like the card packs and the cards not all of them but some of they would be marked so the prisoners would know slice it open and then there will be a escape map printed 
on the inside. Mm, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> it is great. It's just, where can we hide this? And it went down to fake sweets. Of course, yes. Fake sweets, fake walnuts. I mean, can you imagine the Germans thought, oh, that's nice. You know, the prisoners have been sent some a pack of walnuts from, oh, I don't know, the, la- well, the Ladies Knitting Society. Why not? Mm. They're being very thoughtful at Christmas. In um, some ways, it was a minor miracle given the privations that the Germans were going through that the walnuts weren't stolen for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> And also you have, I I like this touching, touching patriotic moment when the prisoners in one of the camps, I don't think it was Colditz actually, it was one of the other camps, send greetings, happy Christmas, coded letter to the king. And MI9 (laughs) sends a message back, you know, the king, George VI, sends his greetings to the brave prisoners, whatever it is. Superb. And so did did any of the other Allied prisoners, such as, the, you know, did the Dutch want to write to Queen Wilhelmina, who's government in exile in London as well? Oh, yeah, they did. They Brilliant. did. They, they, they kind of realised that the message to George VI had worked. So, they, <laughs> so the Dutch prisoners did just the same, and, and the Queen wrote back. Brilliant. You know, sent by MI9, smuggled mm-hmm. in, saying, you know, the Queen is, you know, just highly gratified and uh, heartened by whatever it was, you yeah. know, by the... Um, hopes of their well-being and for their safe return and all that kind of thing i feel like the current queen would be quite up for that as well oh she would wouldn't (laughs) she yeah but you know so it's not just about escape and survival and all of that there are those cheeky moments Mm. when they actually want to send happy christmas to our king i mean can you imagine the morale boost that that does for those prisoners absolutely when they get a reply yeah absolutely it must have been incredible to got that response directly from from the king that's brilliant and we've said earlier haven't we that whole thing about morale keeping their morale up was so so important mm-hmm, definitely I mentioned Operation Smash It earlier and that's, I think, as, as much as I genuinely do love all the fake charities and you know, women's knitting clubs that were sending these things in, I think, I think Operation Smash It is my favourite conduit. I think it's worth touching upon what that was because I, I just, I think this is great. Yeah, of course. Well, the prisoners, you know, they like to listen to music. Of course. So we are going to send them some 78, the acetate discs, the old 78s. Why not? Again, keeping them occupied. Keeping them occupied. They've got a gramophone, they're allowed that you know the mm-hmm. Germans think yeah we're going to allow them some music well of course it's an ideal opportunity isn't it to smuggle something in so we're going to smuggle something how on earth do you smuggle anything <laughs> inside this quite thin uh, record 78 acetate disc well of course during the manufacture uh, they hide a silk map mm-hmm. now to access it of course you've got to smash it mm-hmm. but that's fine the prisoners knew that they weren't so much interested in the music not in the least bit bothered I would imagine <laughs> I'm not quite sure what music they sent in, actually. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? The, the... Wagner, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that was great because they would have real records that were sent in that they could use on the mm. gramophone and they could play alongside their theatrical production. But again, a special mark on it would know that, ah, oh, this is a special MI9. A full stop in the right spot. Yeah, it? we've got to smash that on the floor. <laughs> and that reveals the map. Of course, you can't play the record afterwards, but that's not the point. That's not what they wanted to do. No, although I, I do love the detail that they did actually, the ones that they had to smash still worked just in case they were <laughs> tested. They had to make sure they actually played some music because if they were yes. tested by the Germans, they would be more suspicious if it didn't work at all. So I love that little detail. So having got all this contraband in and it's now been gathered together by the escape committee and the escape committee would then 
decide what was allowed, what wasn't allowed, the escapes that were permitted. It was then up to them to essentially filter this contraband to the prisoners for use in the escapes themselves. Mm. By definition, we cover those escapes that were successful. And of course, there were for every escape that was successful, there was probably 10 or 20 that failed. Mm. But what we see in our episodes is then, you know, one, one escaper might have a map or he might have a compass or he references using a compass or money actually money is one yes. of the major contributions i would argue that mi9 made to successful escapes because having money provided the ability to stay in a hotel mm-hmm. to take a train to buy tickets for a train bribery if it was needed yes. if it was an absolute essential and of course that then made it easier to assimilate if you were then able to make yourself more presentable and you could cover greater distances on a train yes. as well and so i i personally would argue that money was possibly the single biggest contribution mi9 made to these successful escapes that we cover because it just Mm -hmm. makes the whole process so much easier once you're out and you know you look at the security we touched upon security but the german security as well when an escape happened they you know they covered a five mile radius then a 10 mile Mm -hmm. radius and then a 50 mile radius so getting out of that radius as quickly as possible was hugely important yes and it was really money that made that possible you could have the maps you could have the compass but if you couldn't get out of their immediate reach okay you were always in occupied europe but if you weren't immediately being looked for at that precise moment, you gave you such a better chance of getting out, whether that's via Stetson, Danzig over to Sweden or hitting a, an escape line, as we've mentioned, and getting mm. down to either Switzerland or Gibraltar or Lisbon. In terms of the money, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, the money is, is important. It gives them choices. It gives them a greater degree of freedom and being able to get away quickly. You're absolutely right. But you will remember from my research in the book, that Italy, they had quite a difficulty in smuggling money into Italy. Yes. And this, again, never be surprised by what you're going to find in your research. This is where I uncovered there is the Rome Escape Organisation. But MI9 did have problems getting the money in and I stumbled accidentally across Foreign Office files, declassified, okay. which made it really clear that the Vatican became a conduit for money to help MI9's operations. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, because, you know, the Vatican's had a really bad name Mm, for being Nazi collaborators or perhaps neutral at best. Mm -hmm. But there's probably more to learn from their history. Because when I wrote MI9, the Vatican archives had not been opened. And then we hit COVID. So still haven't been able to use the Vatican archives. I just wonder what there might be there. Mm -hmm. But that, again, the, the detail that the money is so significant, so difficult to get into Italy, that they engaged the support of the Vatican. Mm -hmm. My goodness, yeah. Which of course was a neutral country right in the heart of one of the capitals of the Axis. Yeah. So having having looked at all the various aspects of MI9's work, and I'm sure there's plenty more that we could could probably record a hundred podcast episodes about MI9 alone, but having briefly touched upon it and how it impacted upon the escapes that we cover on this podcast, Mm -hmm. what, what do you think is the legacy of MI9? Yeah, I think that is helpful to sort of have an overview of what is what is its legacy. And it went on to save over 32,000 wow. Allied personnel. I mean, that's of all services, and that's in the official records. So it is about rescue, but it's also about that fight for freedom mm-hmm. in linking up with those helpers of couriers and smugglers of Europe. It is about 
rescue, the fight for freedom. But also MI9's legacy goes beyond that to become, as I argue very strongly, and I wasn't expecting this when I started out on the research, it's an intelligence gathering organisation in its own right. Mm. And historians need to start looking at this volume of intelligence. And it's not only debriefing on their escapes, but it's also there are specific intelligence files about what they've seen. Eyewitness accounts. What have you seen? you know ammunition mm. dump airfield what kind of aircraft locations uh, of aerodrome comes up so much in yeah. the reports defenses mm-hmm. what about the morale everything is really really important and of course the v sides the v weapon sites the v1 v2 anything that they've seen anything that's moved really really significant curfews anything so mi9 was an intelligence gathering organization but when we touched on the whole kim philby part and room 900 it was also involved in counter espionage which is fascinating it's fascinating and i strongly suggest and and will defend and argue to the utmost degree that mi9 was an intelligence gathering organization that was as significant in what it gathered as mi5 and mi6 in their roles so its legacy its legacy is extraordinary absolutely in which case i think the only thing left for us to do is to first of all recommend that our listeners read your book because it is a brilliant book and goes into even more depth and detail than we've managed to cover and to thank you so much for joining us today thank you very much helen thank you well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on apple itunes google podcast or indeed any of your favorite podcast platforms or you can find us on twitter and facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O or if you want to send us a more long form message you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com 